welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from This Brave Nation, The Tom Hartman Show, Ring of Fire, The Young Turks, Rachel Maddow, and The Onion. And let's all remember that the podcast awards voting is going on right now. Go to podcastawards.com to vote for the show in the political category. I'm still optimistic, but I understand that, you know, for other generations that we're not as optimistic. And I think that we should keep that optimism because it inspires us to do incredible things. And where do you think that optimism comes from in your life? I think optimism comes from not being uh, fearful. Uh, really of, you know, not making money, not having public opinion your way, and, you know, just the freedom of having your own views and doing what you believe is right. Security is at stake. The prime targets are the United States and the American people. They're cold-blooded. They're heartless. It's motivations. Evil. They don't care whose lives they take. Men, women, or children. Fear is one of the greatest uh, detractors of the human spirit. Because I think a lot of times, if you remain fearful, you don't take the risk. You don't aspire to make a difference. You kind of live in a controlled way, or you kind of accept what's given to you, and you don't you don't really question it. And I think I think you're exactly right that there's a gut that that people like you have that we're not afraid and that jump in and say, hey, I've never done this before, or hey, just because it's always been done like that doesn't mean it can't change or shouldn't change. Definitely, and fear is a powerful tool, which is why they use it so often, whether it be to oppress us or just, you know, to invade a country for no reason. And, you know, fear, like I said, it's a powerful tool, and they'll continue to use it until we, you know, stand up and tell them enough is enough. Stephen Spoonamore, a computer cyber security expert and whistleblower. Uh, his website or blog site, whatmustbefed.com. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tom. Glad to have you with us. Let's just start at the beginning for our listeners who are unfamiliar with the the excellent blogging and writing that has been done about you and your situation uh, over at, for example, Velvet Underground or bradblog.com or, or Mark Crispin Miller's blog. Um, Stephen Spinnemore, what do you, who are you? Where, you know, why are you here? As they, as okay. uh, well, Stockwell um, so famously said. I, I, I don't, I probably don't fit strongly in, in the demographic of a lot of your users or listeners, but I, I, I've, I've enjoyed your show a number of times. You are uh, a Republican, I, right? I, yes, I've been a lifelong member of the GOP, um, a very tiny and, uh, somewhat, uh, 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 increasingly lonely wing of the GOP that in it, what used to be involved with things like Clean Water Act and Clean Air Act and mm-hmm. conservation with a very large C and a very small G associated with government. But, uh, kind of the Teddy Roosevelt, Dwight Eisenhower wing of the Republican Party. That was yes, my, that was that my was dad's my, Republican my, Party. I, I, it's, it sort of disturbs me when I tell them my three Republican heroes are Teddy Roosevelt first, 
um, Abraham Lincoln second and, and Nixon third, and they mm-hmm. sort of do a double take. And I say he had some issues, but we also got the EPA, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, and the final codification of the Bureau of Land Management for uh, – public input all under Nixon. So, um, you know, there's good and bad to everything. But what I do is, uh, as a profession, is um, I build very large computer systems. I'm I'm a network systems architect, and uh, most of your listeners actually, as they are going about their day, probably are going to touch several devices that something I've been involved with the architecture of uh, works. So, one example is the what's known as the LSSP standards for a MasterCard interface. Mm-hmm. Those are the logical security and standard protocols by which every MasterCard all over the globe has information injected into the MasterCard. It's mailed to you for activation. The information is injected into banks, into credit bureaus. How that information is managed and transferred so that it ends up in a secure manner um, I'm the principal architect of that, as well as half a dozen other major systems. So that's what I do for a living. Um, now, and now, this 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 knowledge, this background, this expertise brought you into the area of computerized voting. Well, yes, and and to go way back in the way back machine before many people were still trying to figure out if they wanted to use email. Um, there was a company which uh, in, in, the, uh, in the late 90s called GovWorks that ended up having a very famous movie called Startup.com about its failure made about it. But during its rise to the top, it had a um, future of government information fair, and I was invited because the chief technology officer at GovWorks is a friend of mine, and he invited me to come look at this stuff and what they were up to, and I went, and I saw a display of – you know, the future of voting. And I just did a double take. I was horrified. This was in the 1980s. This, this kind of reminds me of the Firesign Theater skit about the future fair. This is, this is 1998. 1998, okay. 1998. And um, I walked over to the machine, and within about 20 minutes, uh, myself and my colleague had laughingly um, hacked through the system. We're looking at the underlying software. We're writing... Uh, we're not writing, but we were able to figure out where we would insert code to change things. And I just went, this is a disaster. Right. And uh, I, I said so quite publicly then. And um, I, I guess as a consequence of that, when the Florida debacle of 2000 occurred, all of a sudden you had, you know, now convicted felon Bob Ney, now convicted felon Jack Abramoff, and a variety of other convicted felons run to a room and come out with HAVA. And the Help only, America Vote Act. Yeah, well, that's the title. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, and there were only a couple of people who I think really thought through the extraordinarily catastrophic consequences of saying, "Wait, we have four billion dollars we're going to hand to these underserved, you know, very dedicated and loyal county." boards of elections, but they never have much money. They're always behind. There's a mishmash of equipment. All of a sudden, the Fed says, we have a bucket of $4 billion provided you use these automated computers to vote on. And uh, only a couple of people, of which I was one, started jumping up and down going, whoa, 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 disaster, national security risk, fiasco. And and I keep hearing this thing. People go, well, why is the Republican? You're the ones that are always starting to go. I go, well, there is a small group within the Republican Party 
who certainly seem to snicker up their sleeve and think that they control this genie. And I sit there saying, you don't. If you build a hackable system, you do not know the outcomes which come from it. It is a national security risk. There are now hundreds of individuals out there with the capacity and certainly the motivation to steal pieces or all of an election. Now, you have, and, we're talking with Stephen Spoonamore and mustbefed.com, his website, and you have testified under oath that you were essentially the man in the middle uh, in a cyber hack that might have occurred on election night 2004. Do I have that right? No, well, not quite. What I've done is I've, yes, I've given sworn testimony in regard to the Ohio case, which Cliff Arnaback and, and, and company are, are managing. And the reason I did this is I know during 2004, I actually spent a lot of personal time and effort trying to raise awareness of this when it was a much smaller community aware of it. And then I spent a good deal of time myself focused on Ohio to try and figure out how it would be stolen because it was fairly obvious to predict Ohio would be the target. Mm-hmm. And I even I had a I personally had a, uh, a run-in with Ken Blackwell. Um, it, it just the, the strangeness of the context. I mean, in 2003, I was asked by the National Electronic Commerce Coordinating Commission, which is a very large um, organization funded by the state's attorneys generals and the state secretaries of state to develop interface standards for communications for secure information for state government. So I was chairing the committee doing the work that the states are supposed to be following. Mm-hmm. And at the, at the convention in Boston, I, I made a very strong statement that while we are doing a brilliant job to know how to safely pay for a fishing license online, um, safely pay for a parking ticket, on the other side of things, we are creating a disaster over there in phone space, in, in voting space. Here, dear, alone with all your letters, letting it go, no, like innocence and feathers. Linda in Blair, Nebraska, who asks, I've logged onto the POW MIA site and have read very disturbing things from Vietnam vets about McCain. Several have stated that his broken arms were not from tucking in when he crashed and that he wasn't tortured like he claims. Instead, because of who he was, he was regarded by the Viet Cong as their prince. His code name while in prison was Songbird, and he not only made more than one confession, but many anti-American videos. Can any of this be verified? And if so, isn't it time for some swift voting on his claims? Well, you know, I don't think that any of this can officially be verified. As you know, most of these reports are based solely on witness accounts, and as studies have shown, those aren't always the most reliable. 
But yes, many veterans have said that McCain was treated incredibly well for a POW and that he was willing to hand over any information that they wanted. You know, is that true? Well, you know, we can't say for sure. But I do agree that a little swift boating is necessary in this campaign. You know, McCain said early on that he would never use his time as a POW and his military experience to benefit his campaign, and that was an obvious lie. He's brought up all of that at every given opportunity, but if you look below the surface, it's not difficult to see the truth about McCain's military service. There was actually a great article by the LA Times this week that showed what kind of soldier McCain really was. First of all, McCain, just like George W. Bush, scored incredibly low on his aptitude tests, and many believe that he was only able to become a Navy pilot because his father was a well-respected lieutenant. You know, over the course of his career, he crashed at least four different planes, which official military reports show all of those were due to his own negligence. One example here, in Texas back in 1960, he slammed into Corpus Christi Bay and sheared the skin off his plane's wings. And in his autobiography, he claimed that his engine failed in this instance, but the military said that he wasn't paying attention and caused the accident himself. They also went on to say that there was absolutely no evidence of engine failure. In another incident, uh, according to military officials again, McCain was, quote, clowning around in a Sky Raider over southern Spain in December 1961, and he flew into the electrical wires and caused a blackout for the whole area. In 1965, he crashed a T-2 trainer jet in Virginia, and after he was sent to Vietnam, his plane was destroyed in an explosion on the deck of an aircraft carrier in 1967. All of these events are documented, so these charges can easily be verified. But all of these instances do raise serious questions about McCain's judgment and his ability to perform even the slightest tasks that he was trained to do. So while his service to America is honorable and appreciated, his record really isn't one that he should be very proud of. Republican national computer, computer cybersecurity expert and whistleblower. Stephen, we have only about four and a half, five minutes here in this segment. Let's just very tightly pull this thing together. I think you've established your, 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 you know, the credibility of your position up to this point. Um, was the election in Ohio stolen? If so, by whom and for what reason in 2004? I believe, I believe it was. In 2004, there was a number of people, including myself and some other teams, trying to watch how things occurred. There's a very famous mathematical anomaly now called the Connolly Anomaly, in which 18 counties, all programmed with a single family, a very, a very active in the pro-life community family who also has a company that happens to program voting tabulators, 
has this extraordinary event where John Kerry receives ex- uh, votes 10, 20, 30 percent below his exit polling numbers, and it's so bizarrely out of whack that a down-ballot judge at the end of the ballot ends up out, who's a, uh, definitely a, a Democratic draw, ends up outdrawing John Kerry in, the, in those mm-hmm. counties. It, so, accounts for, it accounts for far more of the votes than Bush need to win, and the reason I'm involved in this case, one, I helped hunt that down. I then said, well, in order to have done this, there had to be some kind of control tabulator or pre-programming capacity. Then the Rapp family ended up pulling many hard drives out of these before the Green Party recount. That's one flag that immediately launched an investigation in any banking incident. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing um, I wrote and said, by a network architecture, there was probably a central controller of which, of course, at first, uh, you know, Blackwell's office said that's impossible. And then other investigators came up and said, wait a second, on the day of the election, Blackwell switched control of the Secretary of State's office to computers outside of the state controlled by GOP. Well, that's how it was done. Controlled that's by a, who? It's a very classic way to steal money from a bank, and we'd immediately launch an investigation if it happened to one of my bank clients. Right, but it happened in an election, so no election was so, – so Ken Blackwell ch- transferred control – of the Secretary of State's computer system into which all these uh, voting numbers were coming, to whom and where? Well, there's a company called Smart Tech, and they they host, among other things, some of the White House email systems, Carl Rove, White House GOP, a variety of other GOP sites. I was not aware that the switches occurred. I wrote and said in order to have pulled off the hack this way, you had to have a central controller involved. Mm. And it turns out that you were right. Yeah, and other, so I said, because this is what I do is these networks. This is how you would do this kind of network hack. Right. So who's other my... investigators discovered this, and as soon as I saw it, I said, well, that's it. You've closed the loop. Right. So but, who is Mike Connell? Uh, Well, it turns out I know – I work with a lot of these people. Mike and I are both involved in democracy and free speech advocacy work overseas. Mm. It turned out – As Republicans. Yeah, as we discovered this other site, it turned out my friend Mike had also been involved in building some of the front end of the website. So I actually personally spoke to Mike about it while we were at a conference looking at uh, Iranian dissident protection. I said to Mike, I said, Mike, I got a problem here. I've, you know, want the, I want whoever wins the vote to win. I know that you have worked with me on many of the things. I got a problem. You were involved with this. What happened? And he got very uncomfortable. Wouldn't talk about. It. I said, Mike. I said, you and I are like gun makers. I, I build powerful guns. You build powerful guns. If you give a gun to a responsible person, they can use it responsibly. You give a gun to a bad guy, he can kill people. Did you give a gun to a bad guy? And he basically said I may have been involved in something bad. And, and I and, said, go ahead. that's it. I mean, he didn't, he didn't tell me anything beyond that. I just said, this is terrible, and I came forward and told people. Now, you said he has admitted to me, speaking of Connell, he has admitted to me that in his zeal to save the unborn, he, he may have helped others that. who have compromised elections. In other words, yeah, he... basically, that's basically what it's like. We got into the topic. I said, why do you work with these people? He says, well, you know, these are some of the same people I know from that community. I know that's not your community. But he says, I'm not really sure that, you know, he builds front ends. He's not the person. And some people make him out to be this sort of uber lord of hacking. Mike's not that guy. Right. Mike's, an, Mike's an interface. He's a front end builder. 
that so, other people, his front end would have to be involved with the information switching, but it's not where you actually write the program to do it. Somebody down in smart tech down there where this other server farm is, they're the ones who are involved in the controllers. And what and state is that in? Man, uh, I believe, uh, you know something? I don't want to misspeak. I forget okay. what state it is. But it's not in Ohio. And, and, no, and no, this it's, is, out, it's out of state. This is, this is where, these, this is where this stuff was exported. Okay. Yeah, it's either Tennessee or Kentucky. I think so, Stephen Republican Uber computer expert, you're convinced that the election in 2004 was hacked in Ohio uh, at the, at presumably at the request of Mr. Blackwell? Uh, I wouldn't. I don't know whose request it was that, but I, I, I do not believe that the vote in Ohio was accurate. I believe John Kerry won. I believe it was flipped for Bush. about that ABC story that they broke uh, where they have two whistleblowers saying that yes we did in fact listen to Americans private conversations uh, including their phone sex uh, conversations Brian Ross I just wanted to see who the reporter was right uh, and uh, in fact we have it for you here uh, Brian Ross reporting on the story uh, the first person you're gonna see is uh, one of the whistleblowers himself here we go personal phone calls of American officers of American officers mostly in the green zone, um, calling home to the United States, um, talking to their spouses and sometimes their, their girlfriends, sometimes on the same days, sometimes one call following another. And uh, co-workers of mine were uh, ordered to transcribe these calls. David Murphy Falk was a Navy Arab linguist assigned to the NSA facility at Fort Gordon until a year ago. And when uh, one of my co-workers went to a supervisor and said, uh, but sir, these are, these are personal calls. Uh, the supervisor said my orders were to transcribe everything. We were listening to um, Iraq. Those were the same orders Arab linguist Adrian Kinney says she got from her army commanders at the same NSA facility from 2001 to 2003. Kinney says she listened to hundreds of Americans simply calling their families. Americans in the Middle East calling home? Oh, most definitely. Like personal, private things with Americans who are not in any way, shape, or form associated with anything to do with terrorism. It was just um, personal conversations that really nobody else should have been listening to. And you were. And we were. But the law is very specific, and President Bush has reassured Americans again and again. It's a phone call of a Al-Qaeda, known Al-Qaeda suspect making a phone call into the United States. I would say that that is um, completely a lie. I would call it a lie because um, we were definitely listening to Americans who had nothing to do with terrorism. Kitty says she intercepted, recorded, and transcribed conversations with the military, journalists, and Red Cross and aid workers. Did you just pull the plug and say we shouldn't be listening to this? 
I wish that I had, but I didn't. And former intercept operator Folk says some highly private calls were passed around like office jokes. And at times when I was told, hey, uh, check this out, there's something really, some good phone sex, or there's some, uh, some, uh, um, some pillow talk, uh, pull up this, this call, it's really funny, You'd go check it out. And, and you would listen. It was there, stored uh, the way you look at songs on your iPod. That number would get passed around. You listen to this call, you'll hear some phone sex, you'll hear some pillow talk. Right. And you did. <laughs> yes, I did. How do you feel about that? Uh, I, I, I feel that it was something that, that people should not have been doing, including me. Yeah, to say the least. I, uh, although i got to be honest, there's a little priceless moment with uh, Brian Ross. Uh-huh. It's like, so you heard some phone sex, some pillow talk. Some pillow talk, <laughs> and you just get, and then naturally you start thinking about Brian Ross having phone sex. Oh, please stop! Well, you know what, honey, Maybe. what are you wearing? Some sort of blouse, <laughs> or is it lingerie? Is it lingerie? Is your head on the pillow? Because <laughs> we're about to do pillow talk. <laughs> uh, you know, the thing is, they probably have listened to Brian Ross because they didn't just listen. Yeah, to journalists. The, that's the worst part. That's the scariest part. It wasn't just U.S. military. It wasn't just uh, human rights organizations, International Red Cross. It was also journalists and government officials. Now, you think that the higher-ups that authorized that, in fact, told that worker, hey, get back to work, don't question it, just listen. You think they didn't take some of the media calls and some of the government official calls and use that for political purposes? Well, if you think that at this point, then you're an absolute and positive sucker. You're the biggest sucker in the whole wide world. In fact, the whole country and the whole Congress is a bunch of suckers for ever believing George Bush in the first place. Now, of course, there were some of us who didn't. As soon as he came out and said, we're only listening to Al-Qaeda. Well, if you will only listen to Al-Qaeda, you can get the world's easiest warrant to do that. Imagine you go to a FISA judge and I like to listen to Al-Qaeda. says, no. <laughs> no. Okay. Of course you can listen no, to Al-Qaeda. We've approved 99.8% of all your warrants, but I'm not persuaded on this one. Yeah, bin Laden? Mm, What's I don't know. Al-Qaeda? Well, I don't even know what that is. Yeah. Come back in a few weeks when you got more information. The whole point of this illegal wiretapping program was so that they could listen to American calls, okay, was to listen so, to, so they could listen to innocent people's calls. Because if they wanted to listen to suspects' calls, they can get a warrant as easy as anything you've ever seen in your entire life. And that FISA court gave warrants 99.8% of the time. And they almost never rejected a warrant. And they could do it retroactively. And if you'd gone to the Democrats and said uh, if they'd had any sort of uh, spine at all and said, hey, there's three days where we can do it retroactively, we need more. We need two weeks retroactive. You know what they would have said? Fine. Well, Done. they said fine on FISA no, we saw, anyway. No, so no, I'm just, I, all I'm doing is making the point that if that was their concern, that could have been handled easily, an easy expansion of it, which would have made civil liberties people uncomfortable but not apoplectic in the sense that they would have just simply bypassed any sort of judicial review. This is the kind of story that makes me despair of the whole system. Because I get that there are evil guys like Cheney that come in here and want to abuse their power and Nixon. It happens in a democracy. It's natural. In fact, we have a system built to be able to withstand such attacks against uh, a free country and our free form of government, right? So I expect the Cheneys and the Nixons of the world and the George W. Bushes. It's the rest of them that I'm so uh, disturbed by. I mean, the Republican Party, uh, they've given up all pretense. They're 100% authoritarians. They're not conservatives. Real conservatives should be shocked by this. And some real conservatives, like Ron Paul and Bob Barr and Pat Buchanan, are shocked by it. Okay? So 
Then you go to the Democrats. What a bunch of weaklings. How pathetic. They just rolled over on all of this. Not all. There were some great fighters like Senator Feingold who fought them tooth and nail all the way. But most of the Democrats bowed their heads and said, yeah, go ahead, look at innocent Americans' things. You want to record military guys having phone sex? Go ahead, do it all. And the media, they went along with the lies. <laughs> oh, no, 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 they're only listening to al-Qaeda people. All right, well, at least you got to give ABC News credit here for breaking this story. stick around and I just I just had a couple more questions I'm sure they're the questions that are on your mind as well and uh, mustbefed.com his website and and I, let me add Brad Friedman over at bradblog.com has done some more remarkable reporting on this as well as Mark Crispin Miller uh, at uh, markcrispinmiller.blogspot.com as I recall his website um, Stephen uh, thanks for sticking around uh, two quick questions um, first of all just to just to recap you're a, a Republican computer security expert one of the one of the major guys in the nation doing this kind of thing for banks and 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 others um, in this King Lincoln versus Ohio Secretary of State lawsuit you have testified under oath uh, that you believe that the that the election in in Ohio in 2004 uh, had probably been hacked and that uh, the that Mike Connell had had indicated that uh, he may have played some role in that and that the guys doing this hacking weren't your normal Republican operatives. They were people who were very active in the anti-abortion movement, and they be honestly believed that by hacking the vote, they were saving the lives of unborn children. Is that a good summary up to this point? Yeah, I think that that sums it up, although I, 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 would, I would characterize Mike's involvement as he knows them. I don't think he was actively involved. Right, but, but he knows what's going on, and, and he's been yeah. subpoenaed now, but he has not yet testified. You have testified. Um, so the, the, the two questions that immediately come to mind, number one, what can we expect in this election? And number two, what should my listeners do to prevent this from happening? Well, advocate as much as you can for the best possible voting technology, which is called a paper ballot. And I, 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 I always refer people to Canada, Germany, and England, where people go to the polls, they get a ballot, they fill it out with a pen, it's locked in a box. This worked in Iraq, by the way, for the glorious first election of Iraq. And then with as many people from the public as who wish to attend, under representatives of any party who wish to attend, trust individuals, bank tellers, or people count the ballots by hand, and you post at every precinct the result of the precinct, and then at each step of the information along the way, in a public manner, you transmit the information. It's cheap, it's effective, and it's the most difficult thing to hack. I make my living building computer systems, and I'll just emphasize to people, you cannot build a secure system to count votes because all secure systems depend 
on full identity management of who is doing it. I can protect your credit card because I know it's you, and if it's not you, your phone rings asking you if you make a charge. Your identity is linked to the transaction. Voting, by definition, divorces identity from the transaction. You cannot link them legally. So as soon as it becomes anonymous, nobody can check if it's been changed. And there are literally hundreds of ways to hack a computer, hundreds. The safest technology is a paper ballot. If you don't have the option of using one, I have no idea how to secure what you're doing. I personally demand an absentee ballot and vote on paper. Yeah, so our 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 listeners who are walking into precincts this fall, uh, in fact, early voting has already started in some states, our voters who are listening, our listeners who are walking into precincts and they are presented with a voting machine, uh, a should do what and B the message that they should I get it the, the message that we all be, should be communicating to our elected officials is damn it we want to go back to paper just like Canada and England and, and most of the rest of the world um, actually just like democracies do just say we yeah. want paper ballots like a democracy there you go not whatever this weird technotopia we're trying well to like do. we used to have I, you know I remember when I was a little kid seven eight years old in our elementary school it was the precinct and my mom volunteered to be one of the people who sat at the table and of the ballots, and there was a Republican and a Democrat looking over her shoulder. I mean, you know, this, this is not rocket science. No, it's not. And it's cheap, it's effective, and it works. I mean, now you have these voting machines that are now six, seven, eight years out of date. Most of the stuff that was sold by Diebold, Diebold's now so panicked about their legal liability, they've sold the entire company off to a kind of shadowy group of investors from Texas, and now you've got this situation on your hands where people are running around using outdated Windows CE underlying technology with older 2001 versions of Excel as the underneath program. Microsoft doesn't even support the operating system that many people are voting on. The code is running on old chips. It is Utterly and completely insecure. I mean, the number of reports on the web, there's demonstrations on the web of how to hack these machines in under a minute. It's hmm. it's nuts that they're still out there. It's nuts. I want my democracy back is what I want. I don't care who wins the election. I just want to know that whoever got the most votes actually gets the office. It's they can count 424 billion for war. Why can't they count if they can count thousands of bombs and still be buying more, why can't they count our votes? We're not done. We're not tired. We won't stop until Donald Rumsfeld, you're We're about to take a step inside a small D Democratic nightmare. That also happens to be a big D Democratic nightmare, a nightmare that actually happened at least once before in this country in the year 2000. Yes, I'm talking about the Florida election disaster that brought us the presidency of George W. Bush. This year, could it happen all over the country? Even if the polls don't shift much over the next two weeks, could Barack Obama end up losing the election by virtue of Republican efforts to prevent people from voting or from having their votes counted? 
In 2000, the most obvious problems and villains were in Florida. This year, we may be seeing the effect of the worst practices of voter suppression, especially the purging of voters from voter rolls, being nationalized, systematically spread into many, many other states. Think back to that Bush v. Gore nightmare. And back to Catherine Harris, Florida's then Secretary of State. She's best known for stopping the recount. Less well remembered, however, is her removing 57,000 Florida voters from the rolls because their names, she thought, were similar to those of people convicted of crimes. So what did America learn from Florida 2000? About partisan officials running the election business instead of nice bipartisan county election boards? Well, not much or way too much, depending on how you look at it. The Katherine Harris effect has caught on across the country thanks to the law intended to reform the system after the Florida fiasco, the Help America Vote Act. Partisan secretaries of state, not county election boards, thanks to, thanks to HAVA, are now in charge of maintaining lists of voters. So that means would-be Katherine Harris's around the country get their chance to put their personal spins on how our elections are conducted and who gets to vote. In some states, that means wholesale voter purges. Leading the nation is the state of Colorado, with purge numbers that some experts estimate have been as high as 19% of all voters. A new article in Rolling Stone says that the woman most responsible for starting Colorado's purge binge is Colorado's former Republican Secretary of State, Donetta Davidson. For all that hard work kicking people off the voter rolls in her state, she got a promotion, a big one. President Bush appointed her to a federal board formed to help fix Florida-style election shenanigans. She's now in charge of showing secretaries of state across the country just how to maintain their lists of registered voters. Fox, meet Henhouse. These troubling stories are detailed in that Rolling, Rolling Stone magazine article I just referenced. It's in this week's issue. It is called Block the Vote, and it is mandatory reading for all Rachel Maddow Show viewers. Here to try to talk me down, the co-author of that article, Robert Kennedy Jr. Bobby, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Rachel. Um, in the interest of perhaps maybe talking, to me, down, talking me down about this, um, do you think that this election um, could be stolen and could, can, at this point, can it be stopped? Well, as you pointed out, in, in Colorado, which is a swing state, a crucial swing state that could be won or lost by a couple of thousand votes, 20,000 voters, 19.4% of the vote, not 20,000, but 20, almost 20% 20 of the vote was purged by the former Secretary of State. The New York Times disclosed last week that since then, an additional 37,000 have been purged and 6,400 new voters have been purged. So um, certainly those numbers are very significant. Those kind of numbers could affect an election. And what we see is that the purges disproportionately impact Democratic voters. The new voters are almost three to one Democratic in Colorado. So if you purge 6,400 new voters, you're getting rid of a substantial number of Democrats. And the algorithms that they use that are in what you call the Help America Vote Act, which incidentally was passed by the Republican Congress and the Republican Senate and the Republican President, but um, it was designed by, there were some Democrats involved in the original writing, but it was really hijacked by Bob Ney, Congressman Bob Ney, who's now in prison, yeah. and Jack Abramoff, who's now in prison. And it was, um, it's been used to erect a series of barriers that make it really an obstacle course, particularly for, um, for, for African Americans to vote, uh, for Hispanics to vote, for young people and old people. Um, 
One of the requirements is a, that is now spread through most of the states via HAVA, is identification requirements. Hmm. Now you may say, well, it's no problem. Every time I go to write a check, I show my ID. I show a government issued ID, a driver's license. But in fact, there's a lot of Americans who don't have driver's license. One in 10 American of voter age do not have driver's license. Who are they? They're senior citizens, they're young people, they're people who live in cities, and they're black people. In other words, Democratic voters. One in five Democratic, one in five black voters does not have a driver's license. That means if you require a driver's license, you're getting rid of 20% of the black voters in this country. Um, there's other things that are now used also to purge mainly African-American voters. In the last election in 2004, according to the United States Election Commission, there were a million black voters whose votes were not counted. 2.7 million Americans altogether, mainly Democrats. But a lot of them, a lot of these um, methods target African-American voters. Um, another method that is being used that's probably the most frightening is called the perfect match type match. And what that says uh, is that if your, uh, if your registration, the information on your registration, the government agencies, the electoral officials in each state are required to check your registration information against existing government databases, your social security database and your driver's license database. If any of the information in some states it's a perfect match is required in swing states like Iowa and Florida, a perfect match is required. Perfect that match, means, so that means like middle initial hyphens, everything. Exactly. Yeah. So if I wrote my name on my driver's license, Robert F. Kennedy, and I wrote on my registration to vote Robert Francis Kennedy Jr., my, um, my registration would be thrown out. And that's what the new Secretary of State of Colorado has done to these 6,400 new voters who are, again, mainly Democratic. It's one thing to understand what these tactics are. And when you lay it out that way, it's very easy to see why they have chosen these uh, targeting new voters, tar these ID requirements, this perfect match stuff, because obviously this sort of selects for likely Democratic voters to keep people away from the polls. It's one thing to know why it's happening and that it is happening. It's another well, thing know, to know how to stop it. One of the it. things that you've talked about a lot on this show is the Bradley effect. Yeah. And, you know, one of the, probably the better, the best explanation about the Bradley effect, which is really the difference between the, the exit polls and the official tally. Yeah. That black voters, but really it's Democratic voters, receive less in the, in the official tally than they did in the exit poll. Hmm. But that's largely explained by the fact that after they vote, hundreds of thousands, in fact a million, black voters are simply not counted. Um, the spoilage in black jurisdictions and black precincts, and this is according to the U.S. Election Commission, are nine times the spoilage in white precincts. That means ballots that cannot be counted by the machines. Why not? Because the black precincts receive the worst machines, the oldest, most antiquated. So nine times the number of blacks votes are simply thrown out. There are more blacks are also given provisional ballots and a third of the provisional ballots are thrown out. That's why it's important. If you get this book, uh, Steal Back Your Vote, which is stealbackyourvote.org, this will tell you how to avoid 
the kind of the obstacle course, how to run through the obstacle course so you can make sure that your vote counts. You need to know that they're setting it up for you, know why, and know how to get out of it. Don't accept a provisional ballot. That's the key thing. And vote early. It's absolutely critical that people go in and vote early. And if you can avoid it, don't send your vote in, but actually go in in person and vote early. The article this week in Rolling Stone is called Block the Vote. Steal Back Your Vote is a very cool comic that explains not only how this stuff works, but how you can avoid getting trapped like this. You can learn more about that at our website, rachel.msnbc.com. Rock Kennedy Jr., it's great to see you. Thanks for being here. Rachel, thanks for having me. Question, what is anti-American? Congressman Robin Hayes, for example, the Republican from North Carolina. Now he has since apologized for this comment, and that you know, much to his credit. But saying it in the first place, this is Congressman Hayes as he's whipping up a crowd for Sarah Palin. Sarah Palin, she's a lady that can get her done. She's been in Alaska. She got her dead. Folks, there's a real American. Liberals hate real Americans that work and accomplish and achieve and believe in God. That's a great comparison. Now, th this is basically what Rush Limbaugh has been saying for 16 years. I mean, literally saying liberals hate America. Here's uh, Michelle Bachman on Chris Matthews, and she has not apologized. In fact, she's come out and said, oh, Chris tricked me into answering this question. Usually we, we associate with people who have similar ideas to us, and it seems that it calls into question what Barack Obama's true beliefs and values and thoughts are. You've got Harry Reid, who's liberal, Nancy Pelosi, right. who's liberal. What's the, you have what's a the connection? of the most leftist, okay. uh, a leftist administration okay. in the history of our country. If you have liberal views, does that mean you have anti-American views? What's the connection? I don't get the connection. What's the connection between liberal and leftist that, that, and anti-American? Well, the liberals that are Jeremiah Wright and that are Bill Ayers, they're, they're over the top anti-American. Remember, it was Michelle Obama who said she's only recently proud of her country. And so these are very anti-American views. That, so you I, believe absolutely. that Barack Obama yes. may have anti-American views? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm very concerned that he may have anti-American views. What about people like Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid, the liberals you were mentioning a moment ago? Uh, where would you put them? Would you consider them anti-American? 
as well? I would consider I them to have far leftist views. Yeah, you put three words together, liberal, liberal, leftist, and anti-American. What is the, how do they all fit together, those three terms? I think, I think the people that Barack Obama has been associating with are anti-American by and large. How many do you suspect well, of your colleagues as being anti-American? What I would say, what I would say is that the news media should do a penetrating expose and take a look. I wish they would. I wish the American media would take a great look at the views of the people in Congress and find out are they pro-America or anti-America. I think people would be would love to see an expose like that. So Michelle Bachman talking about anti-American. Uh, we ha- yeah, I mean this is this is the the predominant meme right now. This is the predominant clip. And you know there have been times when I've actually felt in a glib moment that maybe Bush and Cheney were anti-American because they've been pursuing policies that have fundamentally hurt this country. But does that mean that they hate this country? Does that mean that they want to harm this country? Does that mean that they don't like this country? You know, I have to honestly say, I don't think so. I really don't think so. I don't think that there is, you know, perhaps there's a small fringe in this country who, and by small, I'm talking about, you know, maybe just a couple thousand people in the entire country. I don't know. But in the political mainstream, people who are volunteering for political office, people who are putting themselves out there, people in the media and people in the mainstream, I I don't think that any of them are anti-American. I think what we're seeing are contrasting views, contrasting pro-American views, people who love their country, who believe in this country, and simply have a different idea of how this country should be run. And I think Colin Powell laid this out so eloquently so eloquently when he talked about this and 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 I, I, let me just play this clip this is this is Colin Powell talking about the thing that finally pushed him over the edge to endorse Barack Obama I feel strongly about this particular point because of a picture I saw in a magazine it was a photo essay about troops who were serving in Iraq and Afghanistan and one picture at the tail end of this photo essay was of a mother in Arlington Cemetery and she had her head on the headstone of her son's grave and as the picture focused in you could see the writing on the headstone and it gave his awards purple heart bronze star showed that he died in iraq gave his date of birth date of death he was twenty years old and then at the very top of the headstone it didn't have a christian cross it didn't have a star of david it had a crescent and a star of the islamic faith and his name was Kareem Rashad Sultan Khan, and he was an American. He was born in New Jersey. He was 14 years old at the time of 9-11, and he waited until he can go serve his country, and he gave his life. Now, we have got to stop polarizing ourselves in this way, and John McCain is as non-discriminatory as anyone I know, but I'm troubled about the fact that within the party, we have these kinds of expressions. He's kind of anti, you know, calling people anti-American. And, you know, in 1999, I was invited to uh, visit, for, to spend a week, actually, uh, uh, with a, a group of people from the Association for Global New Thought, AGNT, uh, with His Holiness the Dalai Lama at his home in Dharamsala, India. And I, I went, and there were, you know, 30 of us or 40 of us all together, about 20 of us who were sitting with His Holiness and actually in conversation uh, every day for five days. And or every afternoon, a half day, and the the mission statement was how do we create a world that works, and 
I remember there was there was this big debate among us, among uh, many of them in the group were Americans, not all, but most among us about whether or not we should endorse a boycott against Chinese goods because Chinese were, were decimating Tibet. You know, they'd killed over a million Tibetans and they have enslaved that nation, his holiness's nation. And finally, after two days of basically infighting among ourselves, we came to the conclusion that we would do that. We would offer His Holiness that we would spearhead. I mean, among the 30 of us or so, we figured that we probably had 30, 40 million people who read our books or listened to us or whatever. And so we got together with him and we said, Your Holiness, we will lead a boycott. And he said, would your actions result in an increase in poverty and the possible death, starvation and death of children in China? And one of the members of the group had been one of the leaders of the South African boycott back in the 80s and said, yes, in fact, that's what happened in South Africa. Thousands of people died as a consequence of the economic sanctions. And His Holiness said, well, in that case, I cannot endorse this. And, you know, in my mind, I had always had like this this little circle in the sand, uh, me and my family and my friends and people who think like me are on the inside and everybody else is on the outside. There's a us and there's a them. And the Dalai Lama came along and just with his little whisk broom swept away that circle and said, sorry, there's no us, there's no them, it's all us. It's all us, it's all the we. And this is what Dwight Eisenhower talked about when he said, let us not become, this was in his, as he was leaving office, he said, let us not become a nation of dreadful fear and hate. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect. Together we must learn how to compose differences, not with arms, but with intellect and decent purpose. And decent purpose. And this, this is a statement, you know, by a Republican saying, no, we're not going to talk about anti-American. We're not going to, we're not going to attack. We're not going to say, you know, these people are, are less than American. You know, Dale Carnegie in his book, How, How to Win Friends and Influence People, talked about two-gun Crowley, this notorious bank robber. And he was finally trapped and he was gunned down. And, and as he was dying, a reporter got to him. And said, what do you have to say, Tugan Crowley? And the guy said, all I ever tried to do was help people. I mean, the bottom line is that all behavior has at its core a desire for a positive outcome. All behavior. And we have to understand that. that There's not anti-Americans and pro-Americans among us. There are these contrasting views. It's hard to rely on my good intentions When my head's full of things that I can't mention
The Palin family is just sitting around the living room eating jerky. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Critics blasted vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin's family today for barely lifting a finger to help out the McCain campaign while the family matriarch does everything herself. Numerous reports are circulating that the Palins have done little more than watch a Roseanne marathon while demolishing a wide variety of dried meats. Political analyst John Carter. It's traditional for a candidate's family to help get out the vote, not just sit around making s'mores or, or what have you. Todd Palin's best friend Chuck Rasser has denied the charges, saying Alaska's first husband waved to several passers-by just yesterday as he was taking out the garbage. I'm telling you, the the, uh, the GOP staffers. You remember 2004? Oh, I want to get we're, get back to the economic stuff here in just a minute, but I, I, there, there's some other issues. Uh, this, for example, uh, Charlie Savage writing for the Boston Globe, January 22nd, 2004. Okay, step into the wayback machine, go back three and a half years. Republican staff members of the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee infiltrated opposition computer files for a year. Market monitoring secret strategy memos and periodically passing on copies to the media, Senate officials told The Globe. From the spring of 2002 until at least April 2003, members of the GOP committee staff exploited a computer glitch that allowed them to access restricted Democratic communications without a password. Trolling through hundreds of memos, they were able to read talking points and accounts of private meetings discussing which judicial nominees Democrats would fight and with what tactics. The Office of Senate Sergeant-at-Arms William Pickle has already launched an investigation into how excerpts from 15 Democratic memos showed up in the pages of conservative-leaning newspapers and were posted to a website last November. You get this? The Republicans were spying on the Democrats. Republicans in the Senate. This is the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee. This was when the Republicans were running the show. Were spying on the Democrats. And I submit to you that this is still going on. I just got a, a, a great note here from Mark Crispin Miller uh, saying this, this scandal is connected to the larger plot by Bush and company to sabotage America's elections. Because we've got Stephen Spoonamore, Carl Rove's IT guru. He's talking about how they're going to use these machines. He's given a deposition. We're going to get we're going to get into this story a little more next week. But I just I just wanted to give you a head up on, heads up on it. And let's not forget, you know, they 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 oh it, we've got to do away with FISA. We got to et cetera et cetera because uh, you know we've got to be able to spy on people because to stop terrorists. What about spying on Democrats? What about spying on Democrats? It seems like you know there's there's some some real stuff here.
for the other than Senator Feingold, Dick Cheney is the guy that I most respect inside Washington, D.C. Now, people get up in arms when I say that, uh, and Ben Mangus has tried to disabuse me of that notion before, but I think we're having a miscommunication as to the word as to what the word respect means, right? It doesn't mean I admire him. It doesn't mean I like him. It doesn't mean I agree with him. Uh, because I certainly don't believe any of those things. Uh, in fact, I loathe him. How does that sound? But I do respect him. And there are some opponents that you might hate and think, you know, are dirty, cheats, etc., but still think, you know what, they get the job done and there's something to be respected there. Uh, Dick Cheney has a will to power. You see, we get the politicians that we deserve, most of the time. And, and, and we get the politicians that our time calls out for. Now, people are always looking for a revolutionary leader, and they're hoping that Barack Obama's a revolutionary leader, but we're not going to get a revolutionary leader because we're not in revolutionary times. Uh, we're in times where the mainstream media uh, tells us that things are going along smoothly and that we need, we need to make sure that we don't pick a candidate that rocks the boat. So if you have a candidate that's an outlier, a Ron Paul, a Kucinich, a Gravel, uh, or take your pick, a Jesse Ventura, they always tell you, no, 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 don't go with them, don't go with them, they're, they're going to rock the boat. And they tell you who's the safe mainstream candidate, and the mainstream candidates are the ones that go along to get along. Right, and they go with basically the system that we have. So I am not surprised when Barack Obama is not a revolutionary leader. I'm not. I will not be surprised when he is in office, if he is in office, and he gives us incremental change, right, rather than revolutionary change. And that incremental change in the uh, right direction is, uh, like said many, many times before, a thousand times better than dramatic change in the wrong direction, which is what Bush and Cheney have given us, and which McCain promised to give us. So, how does that lead into me respecting uh, Dick Cheney? Here's how it leads into it. Because we were not in revolutionary times when Dick Cheney exercised his will to power. And he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to rock this frickin' boat. <laughs> I'm going to come in here and I'm going to take us in an absolutely radical direction when the times and circumstances do not call for it. I'm going to find a way to gain control of the White House and I'm going to institute what I believe uh, are the proper ideas for executive power. And his ideas for executive power are absolutely radical. He doesn't really quite believe in the American system of government, doesn't tr trust our Justice Department, doesn't trust our system of justice, our system of laws, our Congress. He thinks we should have a very strong executive that can authorize torture, start wars uh, whenever it wants, and uh, uh, spy on Americans, and, the list, and ignore the Fourth Amendment, the Bill of Rights, and the Constitution. The list goes on and on. So how did this radical guy not only get in charge, but wind up actually changing all of that in the direction he wanted? Well, that's what we've got to discover. We've got to figure that out and then reverse it, okay? Because there's nobody else like him in the country. And as much as I admire and respect Senator Feingold, he is not, at this point, anywhere near, he has not had anywhere near the success that Dick Cheney has had in changing the system. I mean, look at what Cheney did. Cheney goes in, he just had a toehold at, at you know, when Bush was uh, nominated as president. George W. Bush. He just came, he said, oh, well, we'll put him on the Vice Presidential Selection Committee. And he said, all right, good enough for me. He selected himself as the Vice President, and he got the boy idiot to agree to that. 
Then he comes in as the vice president. The vice president is supposed to be powerless. That's what we've all been taught. That's what the mainstream media tells us. That's what the establishment tells us. And he said, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Except instead of being powerless, I'm going to be all-powerful. And I'm going to run this government. And he did. And what we have to do, if we want to reverse what Cheney did, is find out what Cheney did and learn from what he did so that we can go and have just as much power and just as much influence and change things for the right direction just as well as Dick Cheney did. Because if we don't, the rest of it is nonsense. All right, so I will make you one of my favorite, uh, you know, classic Cenk Uecker, fun, absurd little declarations. We are not going to do it tomorrow. We're not going to do it next week. But over the next 20 years, what I would like to do is figure out how Washington works, how it really works, as Dick Cheney did, and make it our goal together to change it back to what it should be, back to the American system of government, back to the American system of justice and the United States Constitution. We are the guardians of freedom. Thanks for listening, everybody. So, of course, right off the bat, you know I've got to mention that the podcast awards uh, voting is going on right now. Got to encourage you to go and vote again and again and again every day between now and November 6th. I know it might become a little tiresome to have to vote every day, but you know what they say is that they're trying to they're trying to get the the shows to win that have the the highest amount of listener interactivity. And, you know, so maybe a show could have um, lots and lots of listeners, but not so dedicated. So if we have the most dedicated listeners who uh, are really engaged with the show and go back again and again to, uh, to be supportive, then that's how a show with fewer listeners can overcome a show with more listeners and become the reigning champion of the world for the next year. So that's what I'm asking of you. You got to become uh, the most engaged listeners for this podcast, and uh, and I, I appreciate your support. Secondly, uh, I got the blog is going crazy. You got to be checking out the blog if you haven't subscribed yet. Um, I don't know what you're doing with your life. Your priorities are out of whack. Uh, just in the past uh, couple of days, posted some great articles. I want to tell you about. Um, Rolling Stone posted this great, uh, great but extremely long, uh, 27-page article, uh, which is like a mini biography of John McCain. And what we've done is taken the best of that article, uh, you know, giving you some quotes, a little bit of commentary on that. Um, uh, Got to check that out. Obviously, you know, great stuff about uh, John McCain's history that everyone should know. And, uh, and, of course, we would link back to the original if you want to check that out as well. And this hilarious article from the, Washington, uh, excuse me, the Wall Street Journal, they, um, you know, the, the Wall Street Journal, they do good journalism, from what I understand. They do good journalism when they do journalism. And when they do opinion, they're, like, off the charts, crazy right wing. Um, and, uh, and so they wrote this article, which is basically a... Um, what we should all be afraid of if 
the liberals take over not only the Congress, as we have to some extent, um, but also the presidency. And then and the real capper would be if, uh, uh, if the Senate became a 60-vote filibuster-proof majority for the Democrats. They said, you know, if, if that happened, everything the Democrats wanted would get passed and uh, our entire society would go down the drains and they give a, a list of horrible things that would happen in that case, which sounds like not only a wish list for me, but basically a, a list of the most, um, you know, sensical, reasonable, obvious kind of common sense legislation that it's hard to imagine why anybody would be against it. Um, and, uh, and so those are the things they've picked to, to talk about uh, the horrible things that the Democrats would do. And, uh, and it's really just laughable. So, um, so one of our bloggers, Allison, did a great job of, uh, of breaking down that article and, and responding to their ridiculous uh, points that they were trying to make. So, so definitely check that out. Finally, uh, I actually have, uh, and it's been a while since I've had the opportunity to tell a relevant personal story, but, um, but I actually have a story that is a little pertinent to today's episode. So you've probably caught on by now that I live um, inside the Beltway, yet outside the border of Washington, D.C., and what that actually means is I live in Maryland. And I work at a plucky little uh, global warming nonprofit organization with about 15 employees. And, uh, and we're located in Maryland. And our um, founder and director, his name is Mike Tidwell, he's, he also lives in Maryland. You know, a lot of our staff lives in D.C., down in the city. Um, but some of us live in Maryland, including Mike. Um, so some background information our organization's been around for about five or six years. The uh, governor of Maryland used to be a Republican and just a few years ago switched to uh, Democrat. Uh, Martin O'Malley is now our governor. And our organization uh, throughout its history has been um, occasionally involved in peaceful, uh, nonviolent civil disobedience actions uh, to, you know, that we've been involved in that forward our cause, basically. And, uh, you know, we don't do it often, but we do endorse it. We don't, uh, we're not opposed to that kind of tactic. And so, in, uh, I think in 2004, was, that was the last time uh, our director, Mike Tidwell, was involved in one of these actions. He, uh, he basically, along with some other people on staff and, and maybe even some volunteers at the time, uh, risked arrest during a nonviolent civil dis disobedience uh, action in front of a coal-fired power plant in Maryland, and um, and so now fast forward all the way to one week ago from from uh, from what, when I'm talking, we just found out. Mike found out, and uh, and two other people from our staff who um, who were on staff back uh, back in 2005 and 2006 uh, but aren't on staff now three of these uh, people got letters from the Maryland State Police 
informing them that between 2005 and 2006, they had been listed on a suspected terrorism watch list and had been spied on. So this is all brand new to us. Um, not many details are out now, but uh, you know, basically a week ago, we found out that three of our staff, along with uh, more than 50 other people in Maryland, had been on this watch list. And as you might imagine, of course, they were um, primarily peace activists, anti-death penalty activists, and, uh, and people like that who were all spied on. Um, and so just about four days ago now, we held a press conference and we let the press know about this, um, you know, about specifically who was involved in this spying program. And uh, so this program was instituted under uh, Republican Governor uh, Bob Ehrlich and has now been stopped and the information about it is coming out now under the Democratic administration of Martin O'Malley, that the extent to which either governor knew about what was going on is unknown, but those are just the facts for the moment. Obviously, this is ridiculous. We're all outraged. Um, we're doing what we can. Mike has uh, uh, become involved with the class action lawsuit that the ACLU is filing against the Maryland State Police. Uh, to, to try to get these records released. And here's, here's the real catch. They, in, in the letter, they told Mike that he, his records were there, you know, his file was available to be seen by him. He could make an appointment and come in uh, and look at his file. He could not bring a lawyer. He could not make copies. He couldn't take it with him. And as soon as he was done looking at it, it would be destroyed. So, uh, he found that to be unacceptable terms. He has not seen his file yet, and the purpose of the lawsuit is to get that file uh, fully released, hard copies, uh, for him to have and keep and do what he wishes with it. And were that to happen, he says he would release it to the public to, to talk about how uh, ridiculous this uh, program was in the first place and what a waste of time it was to be spying on people like him who are the furthest thing from terrorists you could find in the country so um i don't know interesting news from my world a little bit relevant to today's topic and uh kind of just makes you think maybe we shouldn't be passing laws that institutes uh, a big giant gray area as to whether or not uh people can be spied on without warrants so that's it for today coming to you from inside the beltway yet outside the border and conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you from bestoftheleft.com. Fine, fine, smell black and white. You took a part of picture that wasn't right.